Welcome to the Podcast of Ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. In this edition, I talk to Alan Miller, founder of the Nighttime Industries Association, on how pubs and clubs are being suffocated by endless new rules and regulations. David Bowden talks about our justice, money and power debates at the City of London Festival, and Wendy Earle, convener of the Arts and Society Forum, discusses the changing role of the public in theatre through the ages. Last Friday, magistrates in Glasgow revoked the late-night licence of a major nightclub and arts venue, The Arches. The decision was just the latest dent in the freedom of pub and club owners and goers to drink, dance and generally have a good time. More and more venues are being closed down by ever-increasing restrictions, and even those that do survive are increasingly having to operate in a manner more akin to a police state than a relaxed and tolerant democracy. To talk about the issue, I'm joined by Alan Miller, a regular speaker at the Battle of Ideas, founder of the Vibe Bar in London's Brick Lane, and the driving force behind a new organisation, the Nighttime Industries Association. So, Alan, this crackdown on clubs and other venues seems a million miles away from the rhetoric of the early noughties when we were promised European-style, 24-hour drinking and a bit more freedom to have fun. So what changed? What kind of restrictions are venues now facing and, and what has been the impact? Basically, what's changed is, particularly in the last couple of years, is a combination of things. And I'd describe it as a perfect storm almost. On the one hand, I think there's a very real sense amongst the police that there's a concern about their resources dwindling, closing police stations, less police. So that's understandable. But then at the same time, there's this obsession with statistics. Uh, and often with statistics, what's presented is that the nighttime industries, so bars, nightclubs, restaurants, street festivals, create crime. But when you actually look at the stats uh, that are being used to describe that, because we know serious crime is decreasing, uh, what that often is is something very silly, like mobile phone losses when people perhaps have a drink and they forget their phone, lose it. But then when they go to the insurers, they have to say where they were when they lost it to get a crime record, which all sounds really technical. But then what happens is that the venue gets tagged as being uh, responsible for a crime. The borough commander or someone in the police will say to their uh, police guys, look at all these crime stats. The nighttime industry is creating lots of crime. They come along and they say crime is spiking. So in areas in London like Vauxhall or Shoreditch or Camden or in other areas around the country, this has been the case. And that, in a way, is partly due to the fact that on the one hand, there's less resources for the police, but at the same time, there's been this bit of more of a collapse around judgment and decision-making around the police and also licensees to be able to handle issues when they come up in a normal, sensible way and instead just try and curb things. So what we've seen is the Met Chief Commissioner, Sir Bernard Hogan Howe, say that recently, that what we need is to have a reduction in bars and restaurants of 50%. That will reduce crime. Now, obviously, if you took it to its logical conclusion, what that might mean is you could say no one should go out after 7pm because that might well reduce crime. The thing is, though, when I was growing up, there used to be pitched street battles on a Friday, Saturday night. Some of the police officers, the older guys I speak to now, they used to call it Friday fight night. Not only would the fight not stop when the police showed up, but they'd often have a punch up with everyone in and outside the bar. We never see that in Britain anymore. And actually what we see is young people tweeting about food, drinking far less than ever before, tourists coming internationally. There's this perception and there's this presentation that the nighttime equals crime or antisocial behaviour, another one of those really nebulous terms that could mean everything and nothing. But actually, when you get underneath it a little bit, you begin to see there's, there's something very specific it's about the police being driven by stats 
rather than uh, the reality of, of actual crime. Uh, and we were very keen to sort of expose that, even though it sounds really boring, right? Phone crime stats, but also a general idea that at the night time, only bad things happen. And in actual fact, almost 70 billion per annum is created through the nighttime industries. Lots of employment, particularly young people, business rates. One of those terms that's a bit loaded, regeneration. But I, ma- I asked people to imagine what the high streets would be like without the night time. It's a bit like that Detroit effect. Tell me something about the restrictions that have been imposed. Because I visited the Vibe Bar a year ago or so while it was still up and running. And I was really shocked that you had this airport style security that had been imposed on you. So tell us a bit more about the kind of restrictions that venue owners are now starting to face. Yeah. So what we're seeing is uh, some venues, many are being told that you have to have ID scanners. And an ID scanner is where you come along and you put your identification in, uh, sometimes biometrics with fingerprints, but generally ID uh, images. And they're told that that has to happen. Sometimes they're told that this is what's going to happen generally with licensing. Lots of security cameras, CCTV, and lots and lots of security being beefed up. It's, it's part of the fear that the police don't have resources and their inability to police the streets. And that sort of, it's a bit like when companies became responsible for pensions. It, there's this kind of moment that's happening where the state's unhinging itself from the police, but there's, it's not being discussed. And instead, they've got this smart idea. What we'll do is we'll get the nighttime industry to take on policing people. But on top of that, there's this whole notion, a very nasty, sort of terrible idea about British citizens and tourists, that somehow they should be treated like this. And, you know, I think the thing is, it's so mad because on the one hand, everyone's really compliant. They hand over things and, and they, but, you know, this idea that they're out of control and there's like binge drinking and everything in the public domain now has demonstrated that drinking's decreased. And I don't necessarily think that's a good thing, but, you know, the, the, the average units that people can consume in a, in a night between 11 and 1 is 1.8, you know, drinks, you know, and actually there's very little crime happening, thankfully. Everything's decreasing. So you think, well, everyone should be celebrating that and saying how brilliant it is and how great the nighttime industry has been in terms of contribution. But instead, there's this regulatory impulse. It costs the industry loads of money. It doesn't actually resolve the issues it pretends to resolve. I'll give you one small example. One of our members recently had to go up to Liverpool because they had found someone dealing drugs in the club. They handed them over to the police. When the police investigated, what happened was the ID that this guy had turned out to be fake. They then took the operator to court and said, you let an underage person in there. Now, it got thrown out of court in the end. The magistrate said, this is ludicrous. It cost them a lot of money. But what the police said afterwards was, yeah, but if you if anything else happens, uh, we're going to go to close you. So you've got this moment where it's almost like there's this hostility towards an industry. And if you imagine, you know, when there's a bank robbery, no one says this closed down the NatWest. Or if someone gets stabbed outside Sainsbury's, equally no one's saying that. And, you know, we would be closing down our roads and motorways if it was about death. But thankfully, people go, you know, it's a terrible part of life, but some of these things happen. We'd like to limit them. But when it comes to the nighttime industry, there's almost this notion that, that we're responsible. Rather than being a business where lots of fantastic things happen... But then now and again, what my grandma used to call rotten apples, you know, one or two people do things that are not that great. But, you know, when that happens at Lords, if someone drinks 25 pints and kills over or at Ascot and they crash a car or get really inebriated, quite rightly, no one's saying let's close it down, you know, but they do the nighttime industry. Yeah, we find that 
you know, talk about professional venues and safety. You're far more, it's far more professionally run and, and, and you know, monitored. I don't think it's good that it's monitored so much, but the most other premises, you'd be more likely to get injured in a hospital or a school these days than you will in, in the nighttime. And so what's the your new association and what are you aiming to do? Yes, so the Nighttime Industry Association has been set up. There's a board that we've got that in, uh, has a number of key people from around the UK. Uh, nightclubs, bars, restaurants, street food operators and live music festivals. What we're saying is that there's an economic context, but there's also a cultural component. So we can't really imagine an Ian Schrager without Studio 54. Alexander McQueen's difficult to think about without nighttime. We all talk about whether Ed Sheeran's going to win the Billboard Awards and, you know, Clean Bandit playing at Coachella. But none of that's possible without the nighttime industries. And the cross-section, the fertilisation of ideas between music and fashion and advertising and art and tech... Uh, all of those things are in a cauldron in the nighttime. It's where the exciting, interesting things happen. Uh, and so we've got a lot of support and a lot of allies. And our, our goal really is to take a couple of messages to change the conversation in Britain. On the one hand, we want to say, look, this is an enormous cultural and economic contribution that we're making here. And that's a good thing. And actually, what you might be inclined to do is to say, look how we can encourage more trade and investment and development across cities in Britain, right? And actually, perhaps you want to use people like us to encourage more uh, tourism or even go to expos in Shanghai or elsewhere and look at what Berlin and Barcelona and other cities like that are doing. So on the one hand, we want to have that good news story and change that from naughty people behaving badly, which none of us are. And if anyone is breaking the rules, then that can be handled. But change that conversation. But at the same time, you know, recognise that we're going to have to unpick a few things, do some uh, academic research and stats, and we're doing all of that, and make presentations and lobby a little bit in terms of the government, local authorities, the mayor's office, and basically win over some hearts and minds and say, is it that smart to close things down? Like you mentioned very worryingly, the arches. I mean, if you actually look at why they're being punished, they're being punished for fulfilling the criteria of handing over things they find on the door. What kind of message does that send to operators? Firstly, should they not do that? And secondly, if people think that's going to stop people doing things, that's, I don't think that's the case. That's a bigger conversation for society. And yet, you know, and so once again, it reinforces the idea that venues are being held to account in a way that's disproportionate. People don't when they're shoplifting at shopping malls or petrol stations or anywhere else. And that's what we want. We want the industry to be treated professionally. When things happen, that's a problem. After all, I hate this term, but we're stakeholders in the in the cities and in, in the country. We are people that work there, employ there, and we have to work very nice. No one wants there to be crime. But just to restate it, crime's been decreasing you know this is generally a good news story so our goal is to get a message out to change the national conversation but also have a few wins there's another win that we want to get which is they've got it in australia it's called established use so if you move in next to a street full of bars and clubs you can't then start complaining about it similarly if you move in next to a motorway right it's there so you recognize it you know it. you're grown up you move in you see it that's established use that may take a little longer so basically there's a few key goals the, the main one in the first year is to change the conversation to start pushing it in a different direction and to say we're happy to work with everyone with authorities and everything but like in agriculture or biomedicine or anything else let's not start penalising them because nowadays people are running the nighttime industries are having to be security companies rather than entertainment companies okay well as someone who loves my pubs and clubs I wish you the very best of luck thank you very much thank you
The result of the UK general election was a surprise to most people, with David Cameron's Conservatives return to power with an overall majority and all thoughts of coalition dead and buried. What was not a surprise, however, was the paucity of the election debate, focused on a few narrow issues of trust and personality, rather than the substantive issues that face the UK in the next five years. As a result, the Institute of Ideas has programmed a series of debates for the City of London Festival to examine both the fallout from the election, but also the kinds of issues that were ignored during the campaign. To explain what's going on, I'm joined by David Bowden, Associate Director at the Institute and the producer of the debates. So David, what's the theme for the debates and where and when do they take place? Well, the theme of the events is justice, money, power, which of course are three themes which are both central, I think, to life in London today as well as the rest of the UK. They've been held at selected venues around London from the 23rd of June to the 8th of July. Um, the whole festival runs from the 22nd to the uh, the 9th of July. Uh, venues which kind of really showcase a lot of the centrality and importance of these discussions to the city. So we have kicking us off on the 23rd of June, we have a debate about whether judges have too much power in English political life being held at the judges' room of the Old Bailey. Um, We have a debate on skyscrapers and slums and whether the City of London is now being irreversibly torn between uh, its wealth and its need for social provision being held at London and Partners, which is a commercial arm of the City of London overlooking City Hall on the 1st of July. We also have one on whether Europe is good or bad for Britain and for business in general to be held at the CNBC studios on the 7th of July, as well as a bunch of issues at the Bishopsgate Institute just off Liverpool Street. Although these debates were planned long before the election, there's a group of them that fit well with the need for a post-election debate. So what issues are you covering there? Well, on the 24th of June, we have a post-election question time, which we deliberately scheduled to try and programme after the election had come in, perhaps slightly with an eye at the time of all of the coalition building that people had predicted from various sides. It was one of the hardest topics to try and judge. Um, at the moment, it's it's difficult to know how to judge it without just packing it full of Tories or packing it full of Labour leaders who are competing with each other over how they think the Labour Party should go next. But hopefully we're going to have a more interesting and diverse mix of commentators and politicians who are going to be you know, really actually hopefully, hopefully having a chance to discuss what the issues that didn't come up in the election were. Um, so I'm particularly looking forward to that. We also have another one at the Bishopsgate Institute on the 30th of June called Are We Heading for Another Crisis? which again features a kind of panel of economists and commentators really trying to take the pulse of the UK economy, where the global economy is doing, and the question of economic growth, which has hardly ever came up in the election at all. That was very noticeable by its absence, any real discussion about the state of the UK economy. So we have uh, Phil Mullen, who um, spoke at one of our earlier events um, in the State of the Nation talks, alongside um, John Mills, who's a major funder of uh, Labour, and uh, has written quite a lot about what he thinks the alternative economic vision for the UK should be. And we also have a big one on Is Europe Bad for Business, which was not really straightforwardly discussed in the election campaigns. Obviously, the the major issue would be whether the Conservatives would get in and offer us a referendum on EU membership or whether the Labour and SNP would get in and stop us from having a referendum and whether the Lib Dems would try and stop us. Obviously, we are now committed to that now. I think it would actually be quite good to have a discussion not just about the democratic nature of the European Union, which I think is a vital issue, but I think a really crucial one to actually try and understand 
what the benefits are to try and get people who are pro-Europe to make a, a case for it, to ask people who are against Europe to make a case um, for for that. And I think hopefully we can at least try and make sure we have a good and honest discussion in the run-up to the referendum over the next couple of years than we had during this election. And are there any other uh, debates that you want to flag up in terms of that go beyond the election? Well, there's a series of them. I mean, it's quite striking that pretty much all of the topics, I think, could be related and have changed perhaps since the election. I mean, most strikingly, the one about whether judges have too much power on the 23rd of June. Now that Michael Gove has been put in as Justice Secretary, there's an issue looking about the role of human rights legislation in the in the UK, what the power of judges should be. It's become quite a sort of familiar term now to hear every time there's a piece of government legislation that people disagree with and people ask for an independent judge-led inquiry or a judicial review rather than perhaps playing out on the field of politics. So that's poses some very serious constitutional questions uh, for the UK, particularly in light of the Conservative proposals to bring in a British Bill of Rights to replace the Human Rights Act. So I think that will be a good opportunity to to reflect on some of those issues, which again is an incredibly important piece of political um, and legal life, which wasn't discussed in the election at all. One of the ones that I think is vitally important to, for us to discuss is one that we're holding at Bishopsgate Institute on the 25th of June called Fight for Your Right to Party, where we're teaming up with the Nighttime Industries Association to have a discussion about the way in which every favourite bar that you you may have had in London seems to be disappearing. One around the role of the nation state today, which I think is particularly important, I think both in light of the SNP's successes and a sort of widely reported sense from uh, the election that the Conservatives were able to galvanise an English vote against the Scottish vote, where that leaves us now for the United Kingdom. Also, again, with the backdrop, of course, of, you know, we have a, a society where some teenagers are actively rejecting it wholesale to go off to fight for ISIS. So the question of what it means to be British today, what it means to have any allegiance to uh, uh, a nation state. Also in the light of what's happened in France this year on the same level, which has a sort of similarly, perhaps much more sharply divided society around who is classes themselves as French or not. So that's uh, on the 2nd of July at the Bishopsgate Institute. And we also have a fantastic one on question of the Millennium Development Goals and what replaces them, which are up for uh, renewal this year. People want to uh, discuss the Sustainable Development Goals. And that's quite striking for me personally when I first got involved in in politics well over a decade ago. The Millennium Development Goals were this kind of sacrosanct institution that this was what you kind of appealed to for anyone who wanted to be involved in politics because it was the kind of questions of development and how you ensured fair development now it hardly ever seems to get a look in on terms of the uh, public conversation it hasn't been mentioned at all during the election campaigns despite there being huge issues around aid and how we provide aid and what we're looking for development to do and of course we've seen the rise over the last 10 to 15 years of Nations such as India and China who have actually been developing quite successfully on their own terms and not necessarily according to uh, the dictates of uh, of the West. So that poses a lot of difficult questions for what we want international development to do. So that's also on the 6th of July at the Bishopsgate Institute. And then last but by no means least, we have a, um, a discussion about the Magna Carta. So really kind of going back to um, some of the, the founding ideals of of rights and freedoms on the 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta but also trying to ask about what it means 
today so we're encouraging people to send in questions and proposals for what they think should go into a 21st century Magna Carta and we have a panel of activists campaigners historians lawyers who are going to treat it very much like a sort of question time it should give us an opportunity to both discuss what the Magna Carta was as a document which I think people don't fully understand all of the ramifications and the significance of it but also what we would look today to be our founding political principles what we think to be essential both today and going forwards and so that's on the 8th of july again at the bishop's game that sounds absolutely fantastic so how do people find out more and get tickets tickets are generally uh, nine pounds there's a um some discounts available you can check out all of the information both on the Institute of Ideas websites and our State of the Nation section, which I think is instituteofideas.com forward slash State of the Nation. And there's also the City of London uh, website, which is colf.org, which contains all information both about the Justice Money Power Programme, but also uh, a, f- a wonderful range of cultural events that are going on around the City of London between the end of June and the start of July. That's great. Thank you very much, David Bowden. The Academy is the Institute's weekend residential event held each July at the Y Boston Lakes Conference Centre north of London. The modest aim is to provide a taste of university as it should be, with lectures and discussions on classics, history and literature. This year the theme is the emergence of the public. The literature strands will look at theatre down the ages, from Shakespeare to Brecht. In the run-up to this year's Academy, the IOI Arts and Society Forum is running a series of discussions, each based on one of the sessions in the Literature Strand. To discuss the series, I'm joined by the convener of the Arts and Society Forum, Wendy Earl. So Wendy, tell me a little bit about what the four sessions will cover. We'll be following the programme of readings laid out by the Academy, which revolves around the relationship between the theatre and the public. It starts with the development of the theatre in late Renaissance and then goes on to French pre-revolutionary comedy. The third session deals with the development of realism in the theatre in late 19th century, uh, which is uh, focusing on Ibsen and Shaw. And the final session focuses on Brecht's political theatre. I think you've already had the first of your discussions about uh, the Renaissance theatre. So let's talk about that a little bit. What makes Renaissance theatre so important in the context of the emergence of the public? Is it the content of the plays or is it the emergence of an audience? Yes, the first session was the end of April and it opened up that period of theatre to me in quite a new way. The discussion focused, focused on Shakespeare's Hamlet, but we talked first of all quite a lot about the audience and you know what, how it related to the theatre. And it seems to have played quite a, an important role in the development of Renaissance theatre. Playwrights would often change their plays depending on the response of the audience. And the audiences were really big, surprisingly big. Some theatres could at- accommodate 3,000 people. And statistics suggest that by the end of the 16th century, there were 15,000 people a week attending theatres in London. And they were a pretty vociferous lot, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, if they didn't like something... It would have to be changed. So the theatre arguably shows a growing public sphere. However, uh, it's not just about um, the audience. I think the content was really important and it must have been just really exciting living at a time when all kinds of ideas were milling around and these kind of came out in the plays. The subject matter of the plays changed rapidly. So there was a kind of real move, it seemed, from the religious focus of morality plays to the secular concerns of politics and government. Um, and questions like, what does it mean to be, gov- 
to be to govern and to be governed and also uh, what it means to be an individual situated in a very imperfect world it's not really surprising that hamlet is such a, a frequently performed play because it expresses in a really superbly nuanced way the problem of the individual at that time indiv- the whole idea of the individual was individuals because there was a much more uh, a sense of self-consciousness within the individual and at the same time there was a sense of a very imperfect world against the individual had to kind of fight and this comes across very much in the way Shakespeare depicts Hamlet's role. We had quite an interesting discussion about that and and sort of probed some of those issues. Okay and and, and what changes do you think by the time we get to or the content of your second session by, by, by the time we get to Moliere and Beaumarchais what role is theatre playing in wider public debate by that time? Public theatre in France seems to have developed slightly later than theatre in England. And Moliere, I think, in a way, is, is talked about as, as similar to Shakespeare. The Moliere for the French is similar to Shakespeare for the English. Uh, so it was sort of part of a similar development, broadly speaking, though it developed... Uh, that theatre developed under an, the absolute monarchy of Louis Fourteenth, who was extremely supportive of theatre, but he was also an extreme authoritarian. So there was a sort of like this st- strange period in France of, of real intellectual ferment where religious and moral ideas were discussed um, intensively and there was a huge amount of cultural creativity, but at the same time there was a lot of censorship, so um, the theatre had to really negotiate that and, you know, continued up until, you know, the the revolutionary period. So Moliere and uh, later, about 100 years later, Beaumarchais, playwrights very much at the centre of these developments. Both Moliere and Beaumarchais wrote very funny comic satires, which were subject to um, uh, censorship and had to be changed in order to be performed to different audiences. But they were also very popular. And I think the reason for this must have been the way they exposed to public ridicule the social inequalities and irrational customs of, and hierarchies of the time, their plays mock the religious, social and political mores, manners and hierarchies that, um, of the time they lived in. I mean, it's actually amazing reading, that, reading them today because they're nuanced, they're very humanistic, they're not at all moralistic, they're, they're exploring the meanings of, you know, the sort of like the, you know, the meaning of vice and, and virtue in, in different circumstances. And they come across very fresh, you know, it's sort of like, I wish I could see a performance of Marriage of Figaro uh, now that I've read the play. So the next session, which will be in June, that's when you're going to be discussing Ibsen and Shaw, and we have this turn towards realism. So what sort of themes are those playwrights examining and how does that differ from the earlier periods? Uh, well, that's that's interesting because with um, with Shakespeare and Moliere, the, the theatre seemed to provide a way of bringing the wider public into debate about contemporary ideas and it seemed to express the aspiration towards freedom and against social hierarchies and corruption and against irrationalism. They're mocking the irrationalism of the period, the irrationalism of the ruling classes in a lot of their um, plays and that really comes across and, and you can sort of see why their plays were so popular with the people, with the general public. I think in the 19th century it, something has, had shifted. What you'd what had happened, you'd had, you'd had the French Revolution, which had shaken the world, you'd had the Industrial Revolution, you're still having the Industrial Revolution, which was creating mass society. You had huge inequalities, which had persisted despite growing wealth, and also despite amazing scientific adva- advances. So it was a very 
contradictory period. There were great social upheavals, there was huge public debate, there was you know, economic change and uncertainty and the politicisation of the masses. And I think in this context, realism reflected a kind of a new impetus maybe towards social criticism in, in plays. The founders of realism in theatre, Ibsen, Chekhov and Stringberg, were contemporaries of great thinkers such as Karl Marx and Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin, many thought, pulled down the foundations of religious belief and the belief in creation, and Karl Marx showed social inequality and alienation as inherent in the capitalist system. So it's almost like the the ideas of the Enlightenment were being challenged at this time and being questioned at the same time as they were coming out of those ideas. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating period. And if you look at the plays of uh, the Norwegian playwright Ibsen and the Irish playwright right, Bernard Shaw, which is what um, we'll be looking at in, in that session, and it'll be introduced by Institute of Ideas organisers David Bowden and Anwar Oduro Kwateng, um, they reflect the development of, a, of international theatre, I think, um, and an international public in quite an interesting way. So the work of Chekhov, for example, very much influenced the work of Ibsen, very much influenced in a slightly later period um, the work of Shaw. And that theatrical movement embraced the whole of Europe, uh, from Russia to Ireland. As with the earlier plays, I'd say that uh, the reflections on they had, you know, they involved reflections on society, and indiv- the individual is still central. But they seemed to reveal something that was more uncertain and and angst-ridden about um, individual self-consciousness and almost a a kind of preoccupation with the mystery of the human condition, something that um, they seem to be more internal than um, the earlier periods of theatrical development. Yeah, so that brings us finally to the 20th century and Brecht. It's interesting, the title of the, 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 the last session in your series is called Brecht and the Need to Alienate the Public. Now that strikes me as quite an interesting thought because you know at the time nowadays you'd expect theatres to be desperately appealing to get the public in and even pandering to the public's tastes to try and get punters on seats Uh, so what role does this political theatre play um, at that time yes I think it is an interesting question the final session is going to be introduced by playwright and critic Patrick Marmion it brings us into the mid-20th century and again you know a period of of huge Upheaval. You have you've had the Russian Revolution. You've got the two world wars, the First and Second World War. Sort of Brecht straddles those, and it's a time of global upheaval uh, and a real strong sense of class division has emerged, with working class demanding both political and economic equality. I think um, theatre has always had a, a strong political element. Uh, you know, right from Shakespeare, there was Hamlet, there was Henry the Fourth, and you know, Shaw's Man and Superman and, you know, a number of other plays of the time, you know, of the 19th century were very political in their nature. But I think what Brecht introduced was a new kind of political theatre, something that was um, wanted to distance itself from the bourgeois world of traditional theatre and connect very directly with the masses and the, the working classes. And I think, though... You might say he wanted to alienate the public. He actually uh, really wanted to engage the public and he wanted his theatre to be entertainments. So he didn't write explicitly and directly about the time in which he was living, but sort of, in a way, used moments in history to reflect on the present and kind of expose uh, the public to their oppression. Uh, The plays were very didactic and they wanted, you know, I think the purpose of them was really to 
activate uh, their audiences and activate their public by showing them their alienation. That, that's kind of what I'm thinking. I mean, I don't... I've never really enjoyed Brecht's plays that much myself. And I'm quite... I, I think they, I find them just a bit too didactic in their approach. But I am very much looking forward to understanding a bit more about what he was trying to do and also what he represents in the development of the theatre and, and of the public today and whether you know he his theatre has something to offer us as an art form or whether it's something that sort of you know was just of its time which is something I don't think you can ever say about Shakespeare and I think just you know one final point on that a question maybe to pose is you know is Breck to some way to some extent sort of trying to go back to the very earliest more symbolic forms of theatre like the morality play which sort of like you know took a didactic role in relation to religion and is he you know in a way trying to treat politics as a kind of religion um I don't know I'm sure that's something we'll discuss and I'm looking forward to that discussion and that's an interesting note to end on if you'd like to find out more about either the arts and society forum events or if you'd like to find out about the academy itself please go to instituteofideas.com forward slash events and all the information is there thank you very much for coming in Wendy Earl thank you Thank you for listening to this edition of the Podcast of Ideas. If you would like to hear more of our podcasts or subscribe to them, visit instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast.